You'll be pleased to know, Phil, that I just got so excited I nearly baptised somebody (laughs) with my water. (laughs) Good evening. It's good to uh, good to be here. I've had uh, quite an interesting week this week, preparing uh, for this uh, talk. Phil and I had a conversation last week, and he said, I'm, I'm, I've taken it up to sort of uh, the first part of chapter 9, Isaiah. Uh, so have a look at sort of 10 and 11 and 12 and see what you, see what you think. And I, I had a look at it, and I thought, oh, chapter 11, I like that. It's one of the great prophecies, chapter 11. I've preached on that before. I can, I can do something with that. But as I, uh, as I thought and prayed and worked on it and prepared it, somehow everything I thought I was going to talk about is different. And so I'm actually only just going to touch the very beginning uh, part of chapter 11. And I want to just look a bit at the rest of chapter 9 and some of chapter 10. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to dodge about. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, you might want to keep them open because I'm going to sort of dodge about a bit. So hopefully, um, and if you, if you get lost, just put your hand up and I'll, I'll try and help. <laughs> not you. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's dip into chapter 9. and I'm, I'm going to read from, uh, from verse uh, uh, 9. In fact, I'll start at verse 8, just to, just to confuse you. <laughs> okay. Um, and just to give you a flavour, in, in my Bible, in my translation, this particular um, section is uh, entitled, The Lord's Anger Against Israel. So that just gives you a, a picture of, of where we're at. And I'm going to read uh, verses 9 to 17 and then skip into verse, uh, chapter 10. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes. Rezin was the king of Aram, and his foes are the Assyrians. The Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand, his hand is still upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off both from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day, The elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them. And those who are guided are led astray. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men. Nor will he pity the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And then to chapter 10. Just the the first 12 verses. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning, when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where 
will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Kalno filled like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? When the Lord had finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And then just the first couple of verses of verse 11, sorry, chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of understanding and of wisdom, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Let's uh, just bow our heads for a moment in prayer. Father, those uh, words are hard to, to read, hard to take in, and yet they're your words, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would just come amongst us now as we seek to understand, as we seek to know more of you, as we seek you to speak to us into our lives right now, today, tonight. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some times that we are asked, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? And some of us will say, we'll have the good news first in the hope that it might lessen the impact of the bad news. While others go the opposite way round. If they know the bad news, they know the worst. And then at least they can look forward to the good news. The truth is, we only really want to hear the good news, don't we? In our hearts, we only want to really hear good news. And whenever anybody says they're good news and bad news, your heart sort of sinks on all this bad news. And as I said, when I was uh, preparing this talk, I thought I was going to be speaking about the good news of chapter 11, making only perhaps passing reference to the bad news, if you like, of chapters 10, 9 and 10. But uh, as I say, it all turned out a little bit different. It's been, uh, I know that people have found it really good to be doing this series through Isaiah and uh, as, as you travel through Isaiah, you travel this roller coaster of good news and bad news. It sort of goes, good news, bad news. Good news, bad news, as it, as it travels its way. Messages of hope contrasted with words of judgment and disaster. 
as, as we heard at, uh, last week, the beginning of chapter 9 has this wonderful prophecy of hope. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. The promise of the coming wonderful counsel, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I've preached on that many a time, particularly Advent and Christmas in the past. But Isaiah doesn't dwell just on the good news. And as we heard very quickly, he moves from that uh, uh, magnificent passage of prof- prophetic hope very quickly into chapter, the rest of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10. We're back into the words of judgment. Bad news for Israel and ultimately Assyria. It's difficult reading. Difficult reading for us and sometimes I'm sure that you've all picked up your Bible sometimes and turned to some of the Old Testament prophets. Um, if not uh, Isaiah, then even worse, Jeremiah, because he does get a bit gloomy. Um, and, uh, and it's difficult reading. It's difficult to hear and we wonder, so what's this about? You wonder what it would have been like for the people who were, who were hearing this at the time. Words of, of judgment. Words of death and disaster. We need to understand something of the complex history between uh, uh, Israel and Judah and Assyria. But we also need to know something of that covenant relationship between God and his people. But these are not just historical things because fundamentally what Isaiah is talking about is the whole question of human pride and arrogance with judgment and the grace of God. And even deeper with the whole question of, so who is in control? Who is in charge of this world? And so these, though these things may have been written many, many centuries ago, these issues individually and corporately, they're issues that we all must deal with. And therefore these words must challenge us. So let's, uh, let's get into the passage a little bit and let's see if we can make uh, some sense of it. I said, following the hopeful verses of the first part of uh, chapter 9, we are very quickly into the nitty-gritty, the reality. And first there's uh, the word about the sad condition of Israel. To Israel, Isaiah speaks words of real judgment. In uh, chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men are the head, and the prophets that teach are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. He goes straight for the leadership of the nation. We all know that leadership is a critically important And he's not just talking here about the political leadership, he's clearly also talking about the spiritual leadership. We know that leadership is important, which is why we are encouraged to support and pray all those who are in leadership. But Isaiah goes in hard against the the leadership of the time. He talks to them in, in in chapter 10 of making unjust laws. There were issues of injustice. The poor were being deprived of their rights. The justice system was being used improperly. And the widows and orphans were the victims. 
And we find that throughout the Old Testament uh, prophets particularly, that uh, the the moral and spiritual temperature of of the land, of, of the nation, is tested on the issue of how it treats the widows and the fatherless, the widows and the orphans, the most vulnerable in society. And we all know, we can see it even in our own country, that when things go wrong, it's the people who are the poorest that suffer the most. And Isaiah berates the leadership for allowing this to happen. They're the people that are supposed to care for the poor. They're the ones who are supposed to stand for justice. And here they are, doing the opposite. And then, again in chapter 10, the people are asked two questions. He says to them, when things get difficult, where will you run for help? And where will you leave your riches? Perhaps we might say that uh, if the question of the orphans and the, and the widows is about testing the national spiritual temperature, then perhaps these are the questions that get down to the personal spiritual temperature. When in your own personal life, when it comes down to it, where do you run to? Who do you rely on? And how tightly do you hold on to your riches? They're big questions. And when we're faced with those questions, that's when pride gets in the way. Ultimately, will you put your trust on where will you put your trust? On whom will you rely? I've had many conversations with people down the years about the Christian faith and many of them will say, well I believe in God but something stops them from making that step of trust. I don't need anybody else. I'm alright. I can sort it for myself. And I have to say, this is particularly true for men. Because we're, we're brought up to sort of have that thing about we need to be able, we're the people that sort stuff. We work things out. We don't need anybody else. Pride gets in the way. Prevents us from making that step of of trusting God for everything. Of putting our lives in his hands. And not just our lives, but our riches. All that we have. there's, There's that saying that says the last part of a person to be converted is their wallet. As a nation, Israel was putting its faith in itself and its alliances with others. And their pride and their arrogance led them to rely on those things rather than to look to God. But worse than that, they arrogantly boasted. Again, back in chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, they said, if destruction comes, we will rebuild and we will rebuild even better. They say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. They were arrogant enough to believe that that's what they could do. Because they were a great people. Despite what was happening around them, 
They were compounding their mistakes. They ignored the cause of what was happening, refusing to see that the path they were taking were making them vulnerable, both to invasion and to judgment. Clearly things had gone badly wrong, and that's why Isaiah speaks to, speaks to them and speaks to the root of the problem. Despite the moral collapse, despite the divisions amongst them, despite the bad and spiritual political leadership, and now the very real threat of the Assyrian armies, the people of Israel thought they were okay. They thought they were safe. Isaiah is prophesying to a nation that has lost its way, but doesn't seem to know it. Again, it's very human, isn't it, to get into a place where we can't see the wood for the trees. Especially when things seem to be going wrong, we, we, easily, we easily close in on ourselves. The people of Israel got themselves in that bad place, but they were also in denial. Proud and, pride and arrogance had taken over. They thought they were okay. They thought they were safe. They were God's people, weren't they? But they'd forgotten the covenant relationship with them and God meant that they had to be faithful too. They were people who were going through the motions, going to the temple, doing what was, what was necessary, thinking they were all right. They were too proud too arrogant they thought they knew better and we can easily condemn them but pride and arrogance is very powerful isn't it we've all been in that place where we think we know better Monday this last week I was on a course it was an interesting course and when we got to the 12th hole When we got to the 12th hole of this course, when we got to the T, that we were confronted with this interesting uh, notice. And this notice said, for safety reasons, you are advised that the rough to the right of the um, fairway is severe. But it was one of those holes that, uh, where the T was down here and you went over a hill so you couldn't see the green. And Richard, my playing partner, and I, we looked across and we thought, well, it's just a couple of trees. How can, how can that be so bad? And so, uh, so we played. Uh, modesty permit, for, forbids me to say who it was, but one of us drew promptly to the right of the fairway. And we thought, ah, oh, this wouldn't be too much of a problem. We scrambled up the hill, looked over the hill, and to the right of the fairway was this... Um, the grass was this high, but it was covered in brambles and thorn bushes. And the thorns were sort of this long. Fortunately, Richard's ball was just on the edge. Sorry, I give it away then. <laughs> His was just on the edge. But we thought we knew better. We were arrogant enough to think, they, why would they put that sign there? We can clearly see that there's not a problem. How often does that happen in life? How often do we think we know better? It's easy to get into that place like Israel where we think we're okay. We're safe. We're only going through, but we're only going through the motions and forgetting that we have to come humbly before our God. At the heart of prophecy is the gift to see the bigger picture, to see beyond ourselves and to see our situation as God sees it. 
to see beyond our pride and arrogance, to see that he is the one, the only one on whom we can rely. Moving on in chapter 10, verse 7, Isaiah turns his attention to the Assyrians. It's in his heart to destroy and cut off the nations, not a, not a few, for he says, Are my commanders all kings? The king of Assyria, a conquering king, believes himself to be a king of kings. The cities he mentions, he goes on to mention, were all previously fortified cities that were considered reasonably safe from attack, and yet these had been conquered by the Assyrians. Now Judah and Israel certainly didn't have the military might of these other cities, and the king of Assyria was boasting that he could conquer Jerusalem. And he questions whether they really believe that their God will save them. So we have the king of Assyria and the king of the universe placed alongside each other. The king of Assyria attributes his victory to himself and considers himself to be even greater than the God of Jerusalem because he will conquer these people. Again, he is arrogant. He thinks that this victory is his own. When the truth is, he is simply an instrument in God's hands. Woe to Assyria, verse 6, verse 5, verse 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, in whose club is the, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me. And then we read in verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and haughty look in his eyes. The difficult truth is what, that it was seen that God was sending Assyria as the rod of his anger against what Isaiah described in verse 10 as the godless nation of Israel. Because again, at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy, he is clear who is in control, who is pulling the strings, who knows what's really happening. If the Assyrians were going to conquer Israel, it was because it was God's purpose. And both Israel and Assyria needed to be clear about that. So we have these very clear words of judgment. We have the bad news for Israel and Assyria. And both are challenged about their arrogance and pride. And both are told very clearly who is in control. But there's another important thing to notice in these verses. Throughout chapter 9 and 10, there is a recurring phrase. Amidst all the difficult bad news of judgment, the threatened destruction in chapter 9, verse 12, 17... 21, and then in chapter 10, verse 4, we read, Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Now on one level, this continues to be something almost of a threat, but there's also an element of promise. Despite all that had happened, despite all all that the people had done, despite all the painful words of judgment, God was not finished with them yet. His hand is still upraised. In prophetic language, the the, the hand of God is, is about the power of God. His hand is still upraised. It wasn't all over. Yes, the immediate prospects looked dim. 
The future looked bleak, and it seemed as though the game was up. But Isaiah's message was, God has not finished with you yet. And in the second half of chapter 10, we begin to get a glimpse of that. Something more that God has to do. Out of this scene of devastating judgment come the remnant, the survivors. These are the people who will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And at the end of the chapter, we have the picture of the forest of trees cut down. A forest of tree stumps, we might say. And from that comes the good news as we begin chapter 11. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, the one who is to come. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of counsel, of wisdom, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Although the the end of chapter 10, both Assyria and Israel lie on the ground like felled trees, but the promise is given that the tree of Israel will sprout again. God's not finished with them yet. There is a stark contrast to the pride and arrogance of Israel and Assyria to the one who will have the small and humble beginning, the shoot from the stump of the tree, that fragile shoot that will start, that will grow into the mightiest ruler the world has ever known, filled with the Spirit of God, the one on whom we can truly rely, the one on whom we can put our trust. The message of these verses is to challenge ourselves, yes, with those questions. To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? These are the big questions to get to the heart of things. And as I say, that test our spiritual temperature. Israel was arrogant enough to say, we're okay. We're safe. Assyria was arrogant to say, we're strong. We can defeat anything, anyone who comes at us. And both were proven to be wrong. Maybe these verses challenge us about our pride. Where, where are we at? Challenge perhaps to put our pride aside and come to Jesus, the only one on whom we can rely. The one who, although he really was King of kings and Lord of lords, was the humble shoot from the stump of Jesse, the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Sometimes our human pride just gets in the way. Stops us from putting our trust truly in Jesus, particularly perhaps in the difficult times. And these prophetic words encourage us to look at the bigger picture And to see that God's not finished with us yet. That's good news. For some of us, perhaps, it might feel like bad news. You might feel that you've perhaps reached that plateau in your spiritual life. You can look back to the good times, but feel you're not in that place anymore. Well, God says, I'm not finished with you yet. You may be struggling through some difficult issues. You may feel exhausted and not sure how things are going to work out. God says, I'm in control and I'm not finished with you yet. Maybe you feel that God's demanding a lot from you. 
Maybe you feel too much. Well, God says, I'm in control. Trust me. I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not sure I should say this, but I should say it anyway. Maybe some of us are feeling a bit old and decrepit. God says, I'm in control. And I ain't finished with you yet. You may even feel everything's okay. I'm floating along. God says, I'm not finished with you yet. Maybe God doesn't seem to be at work, at least not in the way you're hoping and praying for and you're struggling to understand what's going on. God says, I'm in control. And I ain't finished with you yet. These words of Isaiah, that roller coaster of good news and bad news, challenge us. They speak to us, speak of our pride and arrogance, encourage us to come humbly before our God. They tell us that. It's God who's in control. Despite what things seem to be, despite what others may say, sometimes despite how we feel, God says, I'm in control. And he says to each one of us, every single one of us, he says, I'm not finished with you yet. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Lord, as we just ask your Holy Spirit to move amongst us. Lord, that you might Convict us, challenge us, encourage us. In the quiet, Lord, I pray that you would speak into our hearts.